You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. Today's episode is Religion and Recovery. I'm Hannah Smith, Senior Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And I'm Katie Geary, a Beckett Fellow. Today we bring you the story of a Christian rescue mission in Boise, Idaho, that serves people without a home, without a job, and struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. It's a story about one woman who turned her life around and the people who helped her do it. And about a lawsuit that tried to change the very essence of this Christian ministry's message. We'll see what can happen when a good law, a law that's meant to protect people from housing discrimination, is used as a threat against religious ministries. As you'll see, the stakes are devastatingly high. We begin by introducing you to the Boise Rescue Mission Ministries. Oh, the blues ain't nothing. The mission has been in Boise going on 58 years. It's an organization that serves the homeless by providing food and shelter, and it runs recovery programs for those with problems of drug and alcohol addiction. It was started by a group of businessmen in Boise, professional men working in the center of town in the 1950s. Every day they saw the problem of homelessness, middle-aged men who'd seen better days and were living on and off of trains, struggling with alcohol addiction and other challenges. We are now a ministry with over 140 employees. Reverend Bill Roscoe, the CEO of the Boise Rescue Mission. We have over 2,000 volunteers every year, and uh, we're, as I mentioned, we're serving over 1,000 meals a day and, and over 450 nights of shelter every night. But there's something about the Boise Rescue Mission that can't be ignored. You see, the mission is openly and unequivocally Christian. When the Rescue Mission was founded in 1958, it was actually named the Christ Rescue Mission. While I was talking to Bill, it became clear that the people who work for the mission are there because of their own faith, including Bill. Prior to becoming a Christian, I I had a lot of issues in my life, uh, unresolved uh, Unresolved issues over uh, my my father's death. He, my father died while I was in died right after I came off of Vietnam. I was a I am a combat I'm a combat soldier from Vietnam War. After coming back from Vietnam, Bill developed a drinking problem and had some minor law enforcement issues. Bottom line, he wasn't doing very well. Looking back now, I certainly recognize my own PTSD. Um, at the time, of course, in 1971. PTSD was an unknown illness. You know, they just, everybody thought we were just all crazy uh, because of the war. So in March 1976, through a lot of events that unraveled suddenly, I um, I discovered Jesus as my Savior and uh, recognized Him as my Savior and became a Christian. As Bill explained, the mission has always been Christian. In fact, you can't understand the mission and its ministries without understanding its Christian faith foundation. And so from our very beginnings uh, through this very moment, our rescue mission has been focused on proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the people who come through the doors of the mission who are needy and hurting and looking for a hand up. We have uh, always emphasized the Bible as the primary learning tool at the mission. When it comes to the homeless shelters, the mission offers open chapel services, but no one is required to attend in return for a meal or a bed. Where the faith element is most visible, though, is in the drug and alcohol recovery programs. 
These programs are meant to address severe underlying causes of homelessness, namely addiction. And the way the rescue mission sees it, that's God's work. In 2006, the Christian Foundation of the Boise Rescue Mission came under fire. Two individuals joined up with a group called the Intermountain Fair Housing Council to sue the mission. The plaintiffs claimed that they were being treated unfairly. I asked Luke Goodrich, Deputy General Counsel of the Beckett Fund, about their claims. They said that people who went to the religious service before dinner got first in line for dinner. And so they basically claimed that this Christian housing uh, homeless shelter was discriminating on the basis of religion. The basis of the lawsuit was the Federal Fair Housing Act of 1968. President Lyndon B. Johnson first called for the law in 1966. That message called for the enactment, and I quote, of the first effective federal law against discrimination in the sale and the rental of housing in the United States of America. But it wasn't until 1968 that Congress actually passed the law. I do not exaggerate when I say that the proudest moments of my presidency have been times such as this. Congress, when it passed the Federal Fair Housing Act, included a religious exemption that would protect religious organizations uh, from the application of this federal statute. Can you tell me a little bit about this religious exemption and why, in your view, Congress felt it necessary to include this kind of religious exemption from this federal statute? Sure. The The Federal Fair Housing Act is a great law. It's done a lot of great things to eliminate discrimination in housing. But Congress also knows that not everything that everybody does is discrimination. So, for example, if you have a fraternity and you uh, have a house that houses people who are part of that fraternity, you're allowed to limit the house to only male occupants. That's not discrimination under the Fair Housing Act. And in the same way, lots of religious groups provide housing for various religious reasons, maybe even a convent or a parsonage for the pastor to live in. And so when a religious group is providing housing, it should have the right to limit that housing to people of the same faith as long as they're not you know, selling that housing or renting that housing. And that's what the Fair Housing Act recognizes, that a religious group has a legitimate reason to limit housing to people of the same faith, as long as it's nonprofit housing. Unfortunately, this good law was used to try to punish the mission for being openly Christian. Well, you've probably heard the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. And this is a case where somebody was trying to punish a Christian homeless shelter for doing a lot of good deeds. And they said, basically, we feel like we've been discriminated against uh, because we're not the same religion as this homeless shelter. And the homeless shelter had religious services before they gave us our free meals. And we felt like that was discrimination. This was obviously very disturbing for the people running the Boise Rescue Mission. They were confident that they hadn't discriminated against anyone. For Reverend Bill and his staff, running the mission is more than a job. It's a calling. It's a vocation. They're bringing people to Christ. But first, they're delivering basic, everyday needs. But what disturbed them more than the possibility of losing their vocation was the terrible potential of this case to leave desperate people, like Flora, in dangerous, dire, life-or-death situations. Flora came to the Boise Rescue Mission in 2006, the same year that the lawsuit began. She agreed to tell us her very difficult story. 
Well, what initially brought me to the Boise Rescue Mission was I had been living with a guy for 12 years, and I was 44 years old at the time, and um, I'd been a drinker since I was four due to sexual abuse in my family and physical abuse. My father, my, my natural father, sodomized me at the age of five while he made me memorize scripture. And um, so I just kind of grew up in that in that mess if you will. And um, so I met this guy and uh, within six months of living with him, I had two black eyes and it just kind of went downhill over the next 12 years. So we we came to Boise when his brother got killed and um, he was working and he came home one day and he had a bunch of meth and we smoked it. And the next day he came home with a bunch more and a bunch of needles and my life went downhill quick from there. I mean, you know, I remember, I remember, I remember living with a guy one time and he, he beat me so badly. And I just remember looking at my face in the mirror and just crying and saying, you know, I just, why? And I just want, I just want some peace. In 2006, the same year the lawsuit was filed against the rescue mission, Flora was arrested for the first time. A few weeks earlier, her boyfriend had gone to prison, leaving her and their dog homeless. When my boyfriend went to prison, they had to move out of the house, and we just put everything in a storage unit. And so I was just hanging out there, you know, and I was going to fix him to do the last bit of my meth. And then the police showed up, and they busted me on it. So Flora had a choice. Her probation officer was making an example of a first-time offender. She gave Flora two options. We're going to give you seven years in the Pocatello Women's Correctional Unit. Or a rehab program at the rescue mission. Flora chose the rescue mission, calling it the lesser of two evils. Having the Bible and scripture used against me at such a young age, I, I didn't have anything good to say about God at that time. When she arrived, it was intimidating. I, I, was, I was scared. It was um, new. I didn't know a soul here. The City Lights program is one of the mission's drug and alcohol programs. Unlike the homeless shelter, which gives meals and housing to anyone who shows up, these programs are very strict. Their purpose is transformation. So they require a huge commitment from their participants. For the first 30 days, there's a policy of no contact with outsiders. The residents can receive letters, but they can't send any out. They're accompanied by a staff member everywhere they go. The point is total immersion, total focus. And unlike the homeless shelters, where the Christian services are entirely voluntary, these programs require attendance. A typical day in the program was um, we would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. We had devotions. That's where we all sitting around in the living room, um, and we would uh, have prayer. And it, like I said, I wasn't a Christian at this time, so I wouldn't pray out loud. I mm-mm. And then we would have breakfast, of course, and then we had chores. The second half of the daily routine included more devotions, lunch, and time to pursue personal goals. One of the things that you have to do there is you have to write out your life story everything that you can remember, and then you have to read it aloud to a counselor. And, wow, it took me like three weeks to write it, first off, because it was just terrible. I was reading my story, and I just, I felt, 
I felt like I was, you know, half of that stuff was my fault. And I'm talking about the abuse of my, my dad and my brothers and my uncles and cousins and, um, and the counselor, she, she just sat there and she just walked me through the, the prayer, um, of accepting Jesus. I, I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that that he there was something there that I wanted. It was like I felt it was like I felt my heart crack open enough for God to water that. It was I just became a willing vessel to learn and to live for him. It it just even now it just makes me cry tears of joy because I remember that night so vividly. It was just it was just like, I want that. Even though Flora accepted the Christian focus of the mission in her first month there, it still took her three years to graduate from the program. The rescue mission isn't interested in quick fixes. Their goal is complete life transformation. You know, recovery isn't something that's just a given. It, it doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. You have to want it. I never, never dreamt that I would be sober a week in my life, let alone almost 10 years. Uh, June 6th of June 6th of this year, I will have been cleaning over 10 years by the grace of God. After Flora graduated, she moved into transitional apartments operated by the mission and started working in various jobs for the mission. She quickly became a staff member in the very same program that she had gone through herself. From that job, she became assistant to the director of the Women and Children's Ministry, then assistant to the chief operating officer. Eventually, she was tasked with helping open a new initiative, a thrift store. It's a powerful testimony to the effectiveness of the Boise Rescue Mission that Flora has stayed with the mission. Her story is her own, but there are many others who've had similar success with the program and have come out dedicated to paying it forward. So we have this great example of what the Christian Foundation was able to do for someone like Flora. But this lawsuit filed by the Intermountain Fair Housing Council was about the homeless shelter, not the drug and alcohol program. Or was it? Well, that's the thing. This lawsuit was against the Boise Rescue Mission, plain and simple. So what was at stake was everything. Everything from the homeless shelters providing a 1,000 meals a day and over 400 beds at night, to the recovery programs where people like Flora are given the chance to turn their lives around. This group, the Intermountain Fair Housing Council, sued the Boise Rescue Mission. The district court ruled in favor of the mission, but then the case went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The biggest fear is that uh, somehow uh, the courts would go against us and rule uh, that we were um, unable to proclaim the gospel such as we do at our mission. And uh, that was my my greatest fear, was that uh, the courts, especially in the climate that we we were in at the time and with the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals being, uh, you know, the, the governing body here, I was very concerned that we could have trouble with them. Uh, you know, going in our favor. What Bill is saying here is that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals isn't known for siding with religious claimants. And that's part of why the Beckett Fund reached out to the rescue mission. We called up uh, the lawyer for the rescue mission and the rescue mission itself. 
and we offered to take the case on free of charge uh, if there was an appeal. And the rescue mission was tremendously grateful for that because they're run on a shoestring. They don't have a bunch of money sitting around to hire lawyers. We had three main arguments. One is that just as a practical matter, the Fair Housing Act was never meant to apply to homeless shelters. It was meant to apply to people's homes or to condominiums or apartments. So the Fair Housing Act shouldn't apply here. The second argument, as you mentioned, is the Fair Housing Act has a religious exemption and basically says religious groups can't be punished for being religious. And then our third argument was, if you are going to apply the Fair Housing Act here, there's some very serious First Amendment problems if you tell a Christian homeless shelter, you're being too Christian and we're going to punish you. That would violate the First Amendment. Something about this case here struck me, and that was a detail about federal funding. The Boise Rescue Mission is entirely funded by donations. They don't take a dime of funding from the government. But the group that sued them is federally funded. Yeah, that's an interesting detail that Luke and I discussed. So I read in the background to this case that the council had received over $1 million over a four-year time period in so-called private enforcement initiative grants from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, also known as HUD, to bring these lawsuits to enforce the Fair Housing Act. That's right. The ironic thing about this case is that you have a private Christian homeless shelter that doesn't take a single dime of federal money, and it's being sued by another private nonprofit organization that gets millions of dollars in government funds. And so the government is actually funding an organization to take down a Christian homeless shelter. And it wasn't even that straightforward in the end. Even though the federal government, through HUD, gave money to the Intermountain Fair Housing Council, the same government organization, HUD, actually filed a brief in favor of the Boise Rescue Mission. So ironically, the agency that helped fund the lawsuit ended up supporting Boise Rescue Mission, and that led eventually to victory. So in 2011, the Ninth Circuit held in favor of the rescue mission, and they reasoned that the Fair Housing Act's religious exemption permitted the mission to keep its religious programs focused on participants that share its religious views. So why, in your view, is this decision by the Ninth Circuit such an important victory for religious freedom generally? Well, two reasons it's important. One, it's very practically important to homeless shelters all across the country. The, the rescue mission is one of hundreds of homeless shelters that serve millions of meals every year. And these groups were extremely concerned that if the court went the wrong way in this case, it could be the end of a lot of rescue missions. And secondly, more generally, the case just raises a very important principle of, you know, when do non-discrimination laws, when should those be used to punish religious groups? And this is the first time that any court in the country had interpreted the religious exemption in the Fair Housing Act, even though it's been on the books for several decades. And fortunately, the court adopted a very common sense approach and said, hey, this religious exemption, it means that religious groups can't be punished simply for being religious. So as frightening and as terrible as the case was to the mission, in the end, we got an amazing opinion. Do you think this will stand as solid precedent for other rescue missions? I do. This Court of Appeals is not known for being deferential to religious claimants. So the fact that they sided with the rescue mission was very powerful. So in the end, the stakes were high, but the rescue mission came through it. The people of the valley obviously stood with us. And once we got through that crisis, uh, the support swelled. I mean, it just really swelled. 
And today, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who would speak ill of our organization. And of course, the real winners here are people like Flora. It completely changed my life, and it changed my way of thinking, and it just, like I said, I'm fixing to become a first-time homebuyer, and that's something that I never, that was never even a blip on my horizon, and now it's, <laughs> it's happening <laughs> as we speak, and it's like, wow. Thank you to Flora Langley, Reverend Bill Roscoe, and Beckett's own Luke Goodrich for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode by Eric McNerney. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious liberty for all. For more information on this case, our work, and stream of conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Hannah Smith. And I'm Katie Geary. Thanks for joining us.